Chapter 14, Part 3 of The Sea. It's Stirring Story of Adventure, Peril, and Heroism, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Sea. It's Stirring Story of Adventure, Peril, and Heroism, Volume 1, by Frederick Wimper. Chapter 14, Part 3. In about six weeks, they organized their plans with such secrecy that it was not till everything was arranged on a working basis that the first admiral, Lord Bridport, gained any knowledge of the conspiracy going on around him. He communicated his suspicions to the lords of the admiralty, and they, thinking a little act of service, would prove the best cure for what they simply regarded as a momentary agitation, sent down orders for the Channel Fleet to put to sea. The orders arrived at Portsmouth on April 15th, and in obedience to them, Lord Bridport signaled to the fleet to make the necessary preparations. As might almost have been expected, it was the signal, likewise, for the outbreak of the mutiny. Not a sailor bestirred himself, not a rope was bent, but, as if by common consent, the crews of every vessel in the squadron manned the yards and rigging, and gave three cheers. They then proceeded to take the command of each ship from the officers, and appointed delegates from each vessel to conduct negotiations with the authorities of the Admiralty. No violence nor force was used. The first lieutenant of the London, ordered by Admiral Colpoise, was one of the best-hated officers of the service, shot one of the mutineers, but his death was not avenged. They again forwarded their petition to the Admiralty, and its closing sentences showed their temperance and argued strongly in favor of their cause. They desired to convince the nation at large that they knew where to cease to ask, as well as where to begin, and they asked nothing but what was moderate, and might be granted without detriment to the nation or injury to the service. The Admiralty authorities, seeing that with the great power in their hands they had acted peaceably, only abstaining from work, yielded all the concessions asked, and a full pardon was granted in the king's name to the fleet in general, and to the ringleaders in particular. In a word, the mutiny ended for the time being. It was resumed on May 7th. As Parliament had delayed in passing the appropriations for the increase of pay and pensions, the crews rose en masse and disarmed all their officers, although still abstaining from actual violence. Lord Howe, always a popular officer with the men, and their especial idol after his great victory of June 1st, 1794, was sent down by the cabinet with full power to ratify all the concessions which had been made, and to do his best to convince the men that the government had no desire of evading them. He completely mollified the men, and even succeeded in exacting an expression of regret and contrition for their outbreak. He assured them that their every grievance should be considered, and a free pardon, as before, given to all concerned. The men again returned to duty. The fleet at Plymouth, which had followed that of Portsmouth into the mutiny, did the same, and thus, in a month from the first outbreak, as far as these two great fleets were concerned, all disaffection, dissatisfaction, and discontent had passed away through the tact and judicious behavior of Lord Howe. 
there can be no doubt that the tyranny of many of the officers had a vast deal to do with the outbreak. In the list of officers whom the men considered obnoxious, and that Lord Howe agreed should be removed, there were over 100 in one fleet of 16 ships. Strange to say, the very same week in which the men of Portsmouth fleet returned to their duty, acknowledging all their grievances to be removed, the fleet at the Noor arose in a violent state of mutiny, displaying very different attributes to those shown by the former. Forty thousand men, who had fought many a battle for king and country, and had steadfast reliance upon whose bravery the people rested every night in tranquility, confident in their patriotism and loyalty, became irritated by ungrateful neglect on the one part, and by seditious advisers on the other and turned the guns which they had so often fired in defense of the English flag against their own countrymen and their own homes. Richard Parker, the chief ringleader at the Nore, was a thoroughly bad man in every respect, and one utterly unworthy the title of a British sailor, of which, indeed, he had been more than once formally deprived. He was the son of an Exeter tradesman in a fair way of business, had received a good education, and was possessed of decided abilities. He was a remarkably bold and resolute man, or he would never have acquired the hold he had for a time over so many brave sailors. He was, unmistakably, the leader of the band he had undone, who, born for better things, had madly set his life upon a cast, and until overtaken by justice, he ruled with absolute sway. Parker had, eleven years previously, entered the Navy as a midshipman on board the Culloden, from which vessel he had been discharged for gross misconduct. A little later, he obtained, however, a similar appointment on the Leander frigate, and was again dismissed. We next find him passing through several ships in rotation, from which he was invariably dismissed, no captain allowing him to remain when his true character disclosed itself. It did not usually take long. At length, he became mate of the resistance, on which vessel, shortly after joining, he was brought to a court-martial and broke, i.e., his commission taken away, and declared incapable of serving again as an officer. After serving a short time as a common sailor on board the Hebe, he was either invalided or discharged, for we find him residing in Scotland and as he could no more keep out of trouble ashore than he could afloat, he was soon in Edinburgh jail for debt. But men were wanted for the navy, and he was eventually sent up to the fleet as one of the quota of men required from Perth district. He received the parochial bounty of thirty pounds allowed to each man. He joined the Sandwich, the flagship of Admiral Buckner, commander-in-chief at the Nore. The best authorities believe him to have been employed as an emissary of the revolutionists, as, although he had only just been discharged from jail, he had abundance of money. His good address and general abilities, combined with the liberality and conviviality he displayed, speedily attained him an influence among his messmates, which he used to the worst purpose. He had scarcely joined the fleet when, Aided by disaffected parties ashore, he began his machinations, and speedily seduced the majority of the seamen from their duty. In some respects, the men followed the example of those at Portsmouth, selecting delegates and forwarding petitions, 
but in other respects their conduct was disgracefully different. When mastery of the officers had been effected, Parker became, in effect, Lord High Admiral, and committed any number of excesses, even firing on those ships which had not followed the movement. Officers were flogged, and on board the flagship, the vessel on which Parker remained, many were half-drowned, as the following account, derived from an unimpeachable source, will show. Their hammocks were fastened to their backs with an 18-pounder bar shot as a weight. Their hands were tied together, likewise their feet. They were then made fast to a tackle suspended from a yardarm and hauled up almost to the block. At the word of command, they were dropped suddenly in the sea, where they were allowed to remain a minute. They were again hoisted up, and the process repeated, until about every sign of life had fled. The unfortunate victims were then hoisted up by the heels. This was considerately done to get rid of the water from their stomachs. They were then put to bed in their wet hammocks. On June 6th, the mutinous fleet was joined by the Agamemnon, Leopard, Ardent, and Iris men of war, and the Ranger Sloop, which vessels basely deserted from a squadron under Admiral Duncan, sent to blockade the Texel. Shortly after, a number of vessels of the line arrived at the mouth of the Thames, and still further augmented the ranks of the mutineers. By this means, eleven vessels were added to the list. Duncan, gallant old salt as he was, when he found himself deserted by the greater part of his fleet, called his own ship's crew, the venerable seventy-four, together, and addressed to them in the following speech. My lads, I once more call you together with a sorrowful heart from what I have lately seen of the dissatisfaction of the fleets. I call it dissatisfaction, for the crews have no grievances. To be deserted by my fleet in the face of an enemy is a disgrace which, I believe, never before happened to a British admiral, nor could I have supposed it possible. My greatest comfort under God is that I have been supported by the officers, seamen, and marines of this ship, for which, with a heart overflowing with gratitude, I request you to accept my sincere thanks. I flatter myself much good may result from your example by bringing those deluded people to a sense of their duty which they owe, not only to their king and country, but to themselves. The British Navy has ever been the support of that liberty which has been handed down to us by our ancestors, and which I think we shall maintain to the latest posterity, and that can only be done by unanimity and obedience. This ship's company, and others who have distinguished themselves by their loyalty and good order, deserve to be, and doubtless will be, the favorites of a grateful country. They will also have, from their inward feelings, a comfort which will be lasting, and not like the bloating and false confidence of those who have swerved from their duty. It has often been my pride with you to look into the Texel and see a foe which dreaded coming out to meet us. My pride is now humbled indeed. My feelings are not easily expressed. Our cup has overflowed and made us wanton. The all-wise providence has given us this check as a warning, and I hope we shall improve by it. On him, then, let us trust where our only security may be found. I find there are many good men amongst us. For my own part, I have had full confidence of all in the ship, 
and once more beg to express my approbation of your conduct. May God, who has thus far conducted you, continue so to do. And may the British Navy, the glory and support of our country, be restored to its wonted splendor, and be not only the bulwark of Britain, but the terror of the world. But this can only be effected by a strict adherence to our duty and obedience. And let us pray that the Almighty God may keep us in the right way of thinking. God bless you all. At an address so unassuming and patriotic, the whole ship's crew were dissolved in tears, and one and all declared, with every expression of warmth they could use, their determination to stay by the Admiral in life or death. Their example was followed by all the other ships left in the squadron, and the brave and excellent old Admiral, notwithstanding the defection of so many of his ships, repaired to his station off the coast of Holland to watch the movements of the Dutch fleet. Here he employed a device to hide the sparseness of his fleet by employing one of his frigates, comparatively close inshore, to make signals constantly to himself and to the other vessels in the offing, many of them imaginary, and give the enemy the impression that a large squadron was outside. He had resolved, however, not to refuse battle if the Dutch fleet should have the courage to come out and offer it, but to return to the mutineers. The accession of the new vessel so elated Parker that he gave way to the wildest fits of extravagance. He talked of taking the whole fleet to sea and selling it to our enemies. He tried to stop the navigation of the Thames, declaring that he would force his way up to London and bombard the city if the government did not accede to his terms. The alarm at these proceedings became general in the metropolis, and the funds fell lower than ever known before or since in the financial history of our country. An order was given to take up the boys marking the channel of the Thames, while the forts were heavily armed and garrisoned, so that should Parker attempt his vainglorious threat, the fleet might be destroyed. The government now acted with more promptness and decision than they had previously displayed. Lord Spencer, Lord Arden, and Admiral Young hastened to Sheerness, and held a board at which Parker and the other delegates attended. But the conduct of the mutineers was so audacious that these lords of the Admiralty returned to town without the slightest success. The principal article of conflict on the part of the seamen's delegates was the unequal distribution of prize money, for the omission of which matter in the recent demands they greatly upbraided their fellow seamen at Portsmouth. Bills were immediately passed in Parliament inflicting the heaviest penalties on those who aided or encouraged the mutineers in any way, or even held intercourse with them, which speedily had the effect of damping their ardor, and by the end of the first week in June the fire which Parker had fanned into serious conflagration began to die out. The fleets at Portsmouth and Plymouth disowned all fellowship with them, and the example of one or two ships, such as the Clyde, which from the first had resisted Parker's influence, commenced to be of effect. The ringleader himself, seeing that his influence was waning, and knowing the perilous position in which he had placed himself, tried to reopen negotiations with the Admiralty, but his demands were too ridiculous to be considered, whereupon he hung Mr. Pitt and Mr. Dundas in effigy at the yardarm of the sandwich. It is a curious fact 
showing that the crews were simply egged on by the ringleaders, and that there was plenty of loyalty at bottom, that on June 4th, the king's birthday, the whole fleet insisted on firing a royal salute, displaying the colors as usual, and hauling down the red flag during the ceremony. Mr. Parker, however, insisted that it should fly on the flagship. On June 10th, two of the ships, the Leopard and Repulse, hauled down the flag of mutiny and sailed into the Thames. Their example was soon followed by others. Parker and his cause were lost. On the evening of June 14th, this miserable affair was at an end. The crew of the Sandwich, Parker's own ship, brought that vessel under the guns of the fort at Sheerness and handed him as a prisoner to the authorities. Sixteen days afterwards, he was hanged. His wife presented a petition to the queen in favor of her wretched husband, and is stated to have offered a thousand guineas if his life could be spared. But he, of all men who were ever hanged, deserved his fate, for he had placed the very kingdom itself in peril. Other executions took place, but very few, considering the heinousness of the crime committed. Still, the government knew that the men had been, in the larger proportion of cases, more sinned against than sinning and when later Duncan's victory over the Dutch fleet provided an occasion, an amnesty was published, and many who had been confined in prison, some of them under sentence of death, were released. On Passant, it may be remarked that three Marines were shot at Plymouth on July 6th of the same year for endeavoring to excite a mutiny in the Corps, while another was sentenced to receive a thousand lashes. The mutinous spirit evinced at Portsmouth, Plymouth, and the North spread even to foreign stations. Had it not been for Duncan's manly and sensible appeal to his crew, where there were some disaffected spirits, our naval supremacy might have been seriously compromised as regards the Dutch. On board the Mediterranean fleet, then lying off the coast of Portugal, the mutineers had for a time their own way. The Admiral commanding, Lord St. Vincent, was, however, hardly the man to be daunted by any number of evil-disposed fellows. He had only just before added to his loyals by another victory over the enemies of his country. The ringleaders on board the flagship St. George were immediately seized, brought to trial, and hanged the next day, although it was Sunday, a most unusual time for an execution. Still further to increase the force of the example, he departed from the usual custom of drawing men from different ships to assist at the execution, and ordered that none but the crew of the St. George itself should touch a rope. The brave old admiral, by his energy and promptitude, soon quieted every symptom of disaffection. The last of the mutinies broke out at the Cape of Good Hope on October 9th of the same year, when a band of mutineers seized the flagship of Admiral Pringle, and appointed delegates in the same way as their shipmates at home, showing plainly how extended was the discontent in the service, and how complete was the organization of the insurgents. Lord McCartney, who commanded at the Cape, was, however, master of the occasion. Of the Admiral, the less said the better, as he showed the white feather and was completely nonplussed. McCartney manned the batteries with all the troops available, and ordered red-hot shot to be prepared. He then informed the fleet that if the red flag was not at once withdrawn and a white one hoisted, he would open fire and blow up every ship the crew of which held out. 
the Admiral at the same time informed the delegates that all the concessions they required had already been granted to the fleets at home, and of course to them. In a quarter of an hour the red flag was hauled down, and a free pardon extended to the bulk of the offenders. The ringleaders were, however, hanged, and a few others flogged. The mutinous spirit never reasserted itself. Since that time, thank God, no British fleet has mutinied, and as at the present day the sailors of the Royal Navy are better fed, paid, and cared for than they ever were before, there is no fear of any recurrence of disaffection. One need only look at the Jack Tar of the service, and compare him with the appearance of almost any sailor of any merchant marine, to be convinced that his grievances today are of the lightest order. The wrongs experienced by sailors in a part of the merchant service have been recently remedied in part, but it is satisfactory to be able to add that there is every probability of their condition being greatly improved in the future. On this point, however, we shall have more to say in a later chapter. End of chapter 14, part 3